G G T G G T G G T G G T T G T G G T G G T G G T G G Hmm, exciting, huh? Well, those 26 letters you just heard might sound a little boring, but they aren't. They're actually pretty fascinating, and we're going to tell you about them on today's episode of Bench Talk the Week in Science. Dave Robinson here, and that sequence you just heard represents a single-stranded DNA molecule by the name of AS1411. Today you're going to hear from one of the co-discoverers of this amazing molecule. It's Dr. Paula Bates, professor of medicine at the University of Louisville. Now, Dr. Bates is not just a bench scientist. She's been racking up awards right and left. For instance, in February of 2021, she received the Innovator of the Year Award from the University of Louisville. And just in April of this year, 2022, she was selected by Louisville Business First magazine as one of their 2022 Enterprising Women Award recipients. Today we're going to hear a short presentation by Dr. Bates that was given back in February of 2021 as part of the Bench Talk Live lectures organized by the Kentucky Academy of Science. But before we hear from Paula Bates, I wanted to give you just a little bit of background about this specific research project. That DNA sequence you heard at the top of the show is an artificial DNA molecule that Dr. Bates and her colleagues first synthesized in the lab back in 1997, and it's generally called a G-rich oligonucleotide, which means that it's an artificially synthesized DNA molecule that's relatively short. It's only 26 bases long. It's single-stranded, and two-thirds of its code is composed of Gs, guanines. Now, guanines are one of the four nucleotides that make up the genetic code of life. You know, it's A's, T's, C's, and G's. But this oligonucleotide is not like the DNA we find in our bodies. Our DNA is made up of millions of letters long, not just 26 bases. Our DNA is double-stranded, not single-stranded like in this molecule. And in our body, the DNA is only about 21% guanine, not 65% like this G-rich oligonucleotide. So these researchers were playing around with these short, single-stranded DNA molecules that are also called aptamers, A-P-T-A-M-E-R-S. The term aptamer comes from the Latin word aptus, which means to fit, and meros, which means the parts. The aptamer, and it could be DNA or RNA, it fits in with the parts of other molecules. And those other molecules could be something totally different. They could be proteins or carbohydrates like sugars or starches or cell wall. They could be toxins that the aptamer binds to. Or the aptamer can even bind to live cells. Aptamers can assume a variety of shapes due to their tendency to form helices and loops with themselves. And once it has a certain shape, it can bind to other molecules depending on what their three-dimensional shape is and whether it fits in with the shape of the aptamer. It's kind of like the way your hand fits inside of a glove. 
Dr. Bates and her colleagues were designing different aptamers with the idea of getting them to bind to natural chromosomal DNA that is double-stranded in order to form a section of triplet DNA, three strands of DNA all bound together. And the DNA they wanted to bind up like that was the DNA found in cancer cells. The idea was to slow down the growth of the cancer cells by binding up its DNA. Now, this was all being done at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And what I gather from reading Dr. Bates' papers was that what they wanted to do was form this triplet DNA in the promoter region of a gene called urokinase plasminogen activator. I'll just call it UPA. Now, UPA is a natural enzyme that's basically a protease. It breaks down protein, but not just any protein only a protein called plasminogen. And this is not my area, but it appears that this plasminogen is an extracellular protein. It's found on the outside of the plasma membrane, and it has a lot to do with the proliferation of cancer cells. This group was trying to shut down the transcription of the urokinase plasminogen activator gene so that the plasminogen would not get enzymatically broken down. Other researchers have reported that if this UPA enzyme is active, it promotes tumor growth and can lead to metastasis. So Bates was trying to shut down this enzyme. Dr. Bates actually published an account of this discovery back in 2009. And from that, it seems like they had designed a specific oligonucleotide to target the main regulatory region of the UPA gene that I just mentioned. And this oligonucleotide contained mostly G's and T's. Now, they were working with prostate cancer cells, and what they wanted to see was reduced growth of these cancer cells. And they did observe that. They observed moderate inhibition of cancer cell proliferation when treated with this specific oligonucleotide. Now, researchers always try to include several experimental controls in their studies, and so they had designed a different oligonucleotide that was not supposed to bind to the UPA gene. They used a DNA sequence that also contained a lot of G's and T's, but it wasn't supposed to bind to the regulatory region of that UPA gene. So this oligonucleotide shouldn't have had much of an effect. But what did they find out? The opposite happened. The control treatment reduced cancer cell growth far more than the experimental treatment did. She quotes science fiction writer Isaac Asimov, who once said, quote, The most exciting phrase to hear in science, the one that heralds new discoveries, is not Eureka, but that's funny, unquote. So this was a funny observation that this rando aptamer prevented cancer growth more than the experimental treatment did. They did some further studies and discovered that this G-rich DNA strand was not actually inserting itself into the genomic DNA. They were not forming DNA triplet strands. Instead, they're having some other anti-proliferative effect on the cancer cells. So over the next year or two, they tried different sequences and finally hit upon that one sequence that you heard at the top of the show. It's called AS1411. Let's hear that again. G, G, T, G, G, 
T G G T G G T T G T G G T G G T G G T G G. Okay, now I'm going to use this little xylophone. Nice, huh? To show how this sequence differs from the regular DNA we might find in our own bodies. So here's a bit of DNA sequence on the xylophone of the human hemoglobin gene. A, C, A, T, 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 G, C, T, T, C, T, G. And then here's the AS1411 sequence. Now it's only made up of two notes, G's and T's. G, G, T, 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 G, G. There's definitely a little pattern to AS1411, isn't it? A specific rhythm. The first half is GTT over and over, and this final half is TGG over and over, and there's a single TG in the very center. Now, once developed, it took less than a year to realize what this AS1411 DNA was actually binding to. It's binding to a protein called nucleolin. Now, you might remember from your high school or college biology classes the term nucleolus. The nucleolus of the cell is the largest structure that can be seen inside the nucleus of eukaryotic cells, and it's composed mostly of proteins, RNA, and DNA. And the most commonly cited function of the nucleolus is the production of ribosomes. And ribosomes are these macromolecules in the cell that are large enough to be seen with electron microscope, and their primary function is to guide the synthesis of proteins from messenger RNA molecules, and they call that whole process translation. And this is an absolutely essential process. So nucleolin is the primary protein that's found in the nucleolus, which is found in the nucleus of the cell. But the nucleolus, and thus nucleolin, is involved in other pathways too, not just making ribosomes. Like how about chromosomal organization and stability? How about RNA processing, cell division, programmed cell death, and response to stress? And guess what? Nucleolin is also involved in the development of tumors and of the response to viral infection. So in a minute, Dr. Bates will be talking about using this AS1411 DNA to target the nucleolin that might be involved in these last two things, cancer development and infections by viruses. For instance, the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Now, nucleolin is not only associated with the nucleolus located inside the nucleus, nucleolin can also be found in the cytoplasm of the cell and on the outside of the cell in the plasma membrane. And it's that exterior nucleolin that's probably interacting with the AS1411 oligonucleotide. Subsequent research by Dr. Bates and others has shown that 
the AS1411 oligonucleotide is probably forming a quadruplex. It's a group of four molecules that appear to be most effective at reducing cancer proliferation. This development of AS1411 is really quite an accomplishment, and it's not just the University of Louisville that's now pursuing research on this oligonucleotide. I did a PubMed search and found 410 different research publications from all around the world, all involving AS1411. Eight of those papers were examining the potential of AS1411 in treating viral infections, primarily against the HIV virus that causes AIDS, the respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, that's a common childhood infection, and dengue fever. But maybe, just maybe, it will also be effective against the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Now, I can tell you that Dr. Bates is a co-founder of a Louisville biotechnology company called Aptamira, and she's a co-inventor of at least 14 patents in the United States and more than 30 patents worldwide. Her patents go all the way back to 2003, with two of them just being granted last year, 2021. And because of these successes, she's been a fellow of the National Academy of Inventors for the past five years. Well, that's enough of me. Now let's hear from Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science, who led the February 2021 session of Bench Talk Live, featuring Dr. Paula Bates. Welcome, everybody, to Bench Talk. This is Amanda Fuller with the Kentucky Academy of Science. I am very pleased to introduce our first speaker. Dr. Paula Bates is at the University of Louisville, and Paula is a cancer researcher, but like many of us, our careers have been disrupted and our worlds have been disrupted in the last 12 months, and now she's doing research on COVID therapeutics. Thank you, Paula, for joining us. You are very welcome. Thank you, everybody. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. I love to talk to the public about science. I'm going to make today's talk fairly general. So as Amanda said very kindly, I'm a, a cancer researcher who has recently also become a, a COVID-19 researcher. First off, just a little bit about me. I always Hopefully, people will find it interesting how how people become scientists and so uh, and what they do all day. So I consider myself first and foremost a, a cancer researcher. Um, I'm affiliated with the Brown Cancer Center at the University of Louisville. I'm not the one going into the lab these days to do the experiments, but I'm often thinking of ideas and and helping design experiments, and of course, most importantly, writing grants to get funding to to do those experiments. Throughout my entire career, my, my major focus has always been on translation from an early age. I was always keen to, to move whatever I discovered into the clinic if I could. As you can probably hear, I have an accent a little bit. And so I'm, I'm British. I was born in a town called Nantwich, which is in the northwest of England. I did my undergraduate degree in chemistry and found the most ex- interesting thing about chemistry was, was the biological side of it and moved to, to uh, London to do uh, my PhD, which was in really officially biophysics, but really it was molecular biology. And at that time, during the final year of Oxford and, and in London, became interested in things that bind to DNA and the potential of 
finding things that could specifically target DNA so that we could turn off specific genes. At that point, I was still kind of working mostly in test tubes and decided I wanted to move things up a level. And so I, I came over to the United States, the land of opportunity, and moved to Birmingham, Alabama in the lab of Donald Miller, who was studying the same kind of things that I did, but, but in cells and in animal models. And so I learned how to do that in, in Birmingham. And when Don moved to the University of Louisville in 1999 to head up the cancer center here, he recruited me to, to come as a faculty member. And after having uh, come to the United States in 1996 with a plan to stay for two years and then return to England, here I am 25 years later in Louisville for 21 of those. So I, I guess I, I like it quite a lot here. My research is fairly diverse. Um, I, I, I think I might have a, a bit of an attention problem here because I like to do lots of different things. Uh, my main research is to do with an aptoma, and I'll talk a little bit more about aptomas later, but they're essentially structured forms of DNA that combine to specific proteins and have certain biological effects. And this is the thing that I'm, I'm going to talk about most today uh, and its role today in, in COVID-19, but in the past, we've looked at it in cancer. Related to that, I study nanotechnology um, in an attempt to, to kind of make improved versions of uh, the aptoma. We've attached it to gold nanoparticles to increase its lifetime. I have what my lab people call our secret science when we, we people bring us strange things to test to see if they're active against cancer cells. And occasionally we find things that are very active against cancer cells, but, but don't kill normal cells. And so we love to, to find these things and then try and figure out why that is and, and see if we can find some new targets for cancer therapy or some new therapeutics that we can move forward. I've mentioned my role in, in the innovation programs, and I'll, I'll mention them again in a little bit. But much of what I do these days is collaborative research. I work with people across the university through various programs doing, uh, for example, cancer immunotherapy, uh, one of our site projects that spun off to develop freeze-dried blood so that you could take it into space or uh, take it on the battlefield and just add water and it comes back to life. So onto the main topic of today's talk, uh, why are cancer researchers studying COVID-19? Well, of course, just like all of us, I'm very keen for this pandemic to be over and for, for life to get back to uh, as normal as possible. But in particular, cancer patients are impacted by COVID-19 simply because they're at increased risk of getting very sick from the disease. The other thing that, that cancer researchers are, are very interested in is to know if the cancer immunotherapies that are used to treat many cancers these days, about 40% of cancers uh, are suitable for treatment with immunotherapies whether those immune therapies affect the susceptibility of patients to, to either get COVID or to become sick from COVID. And as I, I'll mention in the next slide, we think that perhaps understanding the immune responses to cancer will perhaps tell us something about immune responses to COVID-19 and vice versa. What, what my area of research is, is to do with the right-hand side of the slide, which is the fact that there are some overlaps between targets for cancer and targets for uh, COVID-19. When the uh, SARS-CoV-2 first became recognized, people immediately started thinking 
maybe there are drugs that we already have that we can use to fight this disease. And, and that would be much faster than having to basically start from scratch because we know that the drug development process from discovery right through to, to being approved for human use can be 10 or even 15 years. Obviously, the first thing you think of when you think of Kentucky is, is usually, you know, bourbon or horses. It's not usually a biotech hub. Um, but actually, we're, we're doing very well here at, at the University of Louisville at taking what we, you know, discover in the lab and turning it into, into useful products. A lot of universities talk about translational research, and, and they mean that they're doing, you know, fundamental research that might have an application one day. What we try and do at Louisville is to, to really take that and, and turn it into, into the product. And that means teaching researchers about things like patents and, and you know, business aspects of, of commercializing research, regulatory aspects, how do you get FDA approval? What are the reimbursement aspects you might want to know? And sometimes they, they, they don't want to know those things. They're like, you know, I, I just want to do research. But the key thing we try to get across is that if you want your research to really go further outside of your lab, you have to be thinking about this thing. You don't have to be a business expert, but you have to know a little bit enough to, to be able to think, you know, know the steps that are involved in that. Okay, so so back on to, to COVID and, and why I'm doing COVID. So like everybody else, when I first heard about the, the new coronavirus back at the beginning of last year, started to, to worry about it, think this could be bad and started to hatch this idea that that maybe, uh, you know, I think we all, when we heard about it, felt like we needed to do something useful. And so I started thinking about whether what I knew about this protein nucleolin could be useful for, for treating COVID. And so this is one of my favorite proteins. It's called nucleolin. In normal cells, nucleolin is found uh, in the center of the cell in the nucleolus and then in the nucleus. It's, it's uh, involved really in kind of housekeeping things, making proteins. But it's also a stress response protein. So when you stress cells, it increases its levels, it moves out of the nucleus and goes to the cytoplasm and sometimes even to the cell surface. And cancer cells like to kind of hijack all mechanisms that normal cells use to kind of protect themselves. And so, so what cancer cells do is they, they highly overexpress nucleolin. And so there's a ton of it on the cell surface. And what I discovered many years ago now in collaboration with John Trent and Don Miller was this G quadruplex DNA called AS1411. And we found it by accident. We found it could kill cancer cells, but not normal cells. And when we, we eventually figured out how it was doing that, it was to do with binding to nucleolin. So when you're a piece of DNA, basically all you see is the outside of the cell. And so normal cells, you don't, you don't see them. Cancer cells have this nucleolin on the surface and, and you can bind to them and become internalized and, and, and able to kill those cells. And so we formed a company. We took all this, this all the way through phase one and two clinical trials. Unfortunately, it didn't make it further than that in part because because it, it just wasn't effective enough, even though it had some good effects, but in part because the company that was developing it was not able to take it any further. So, you know, we, we continued to study it a little bit, but we, we kind of moved on to other things. But then recently we became interested again in, in this nucleolin and the AS1411 because we knew that another time when nucleolin moves to the surface is in, is in response to viruses. And so, People have documented over the years of all these different viruses in which nucleolin is involved, either in terms of its entry into the cell, transport throughout the cell, or, or just other ways of helping with the, the viral reproduction and spread. 
And some of these were coronaviruses. And so this ended up with me thinking, hmm, I wonder if, if this nucleolin aptamase 14 will be able to block uh, SARS-CoV-2. And, and again, this is a little bit of luck. I think at most places, I, I'm sure there are many people around the country who've had these thoughts. I wonder if this would work, uh, but not many people have the facilities to be able to, to test those ideas. And fortunately here in Louisville, we, we do have those facilities. I happen to know, he, he works on my floor in, in this CTRB building here, Kenneth Palmer, who runs Center for Predictive Medicine, where we have a BSL-3 lab uh, suitable for testing the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, and so I, I mentioned my idea to him, and fortunately, he was able to test that idea and, and show that indeed uh, AS1411 is able to, to block the coronavirus from infecting cells. And just again, I, I didn't want to put in too much data. We don't, we don't ha- you know, ha- have that much data to show at the moment. Um, but I just wanted to illustrate the very simple kind of first experiment we did. The slides here, I don't know how well you can see this, but the uh, micrograph on the left that looks like a pink square is actually covered in cells. The cells are quite happy. Those of you used to looking at cells will know that those are confluent cells. They've grown across the plate. When you infect those cells with SARS-CoV-2, they start looking like that in the middle. And, and again, those of you used to looking at cells will recognize that those are not happy cells, that they're, they're dying cells, they're aggregated, uh, forming syncytia as a result of, of the viral infection. And when we do that in the presence of AS1411, we can completely block the effects of the virus, even at fairly low levels in the, in the nanomolar range. Again, I didn't want to go too much into the details. Um, we're very excited about the potential of AS1411 based on, on what we've seen, its activity in cells. And, and subsequently, uh, Kenneth and his colleagues looked at it in, in human tissues and were able to see a, an inhibitory effect. And most recently have just done studies in, in animal models where, again, they saw an inhibitory effect on the virus. And so the other reason we're enthusiastic is we, we think this drug will be very safe. We, it's been tested previously in, in clinical trials in cancer patients, in over 100 cancer patients, and didn't have any uh, serious adverse effects. And so we're, we're working with, uh, I say the work was kindly funded by, by UPS, the early work uh, in the cells, and now we're working with uh, Qualogen to move this forward into clinical trials, and they're in the process of making a very large quantity of the drug and filing an IND to, with the FDA so that we can move forward with clinical trials, hopefully in, in the near future. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. That is very exciting. I have one question and that is, I wonder whether you would predict that your therapeutic might be effective on the variants universally, because it doesn't seem like the variants would have much of like, does nucleolin behave differently in the different variants? Or do we have data about that? Yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody knows just yet. It, it, no, nobody actually really understands exactly how it works. But in other coronaviruses, it, it, it binds to some of the NS proteins. So you wouldn't expect necessarily that it would be affected by the variants. But actually, those experiments are going on uh, very soon uh, in Kenneth Palmer's lab. Obviously, as soon as we get those variants, we want to test to make sure this this works on those two. But we're we're optimistic that it might do. Excellent. Dave is asking... Does the aptamer bind to the ACE2 receptor or what is the mechanism for um, preventing the virus? That's, that's, that's that a top good secret. I, the, the, the honest answer is that we don't fully understand yet. 
it's fairly well established in other viruses that, that nucleoli moves to the surface when, when the virus binds, and that in a lot of cases, it helps with the, the entry of the virus. And so we think it might be a viral entry. We don't think it necessarily, nucleol in, in, in other situations and with other viruses is kind of like a co-receptor. So it's not the major receptor, but it seems to just help things come in. It's involved in, in macropenocytosis too. And so we think that might be something to do with it. But those are studies, it's almost like the, the you know, the clinical side of things in, in this case is moving faster than the basic side, side of things. So it's the, the opposite of what usually happens. Mm -hmm. And then his follow-up question was whether the aptamer is something administered orally or how would it be delivered as a therapeutic? That's a good question. It's, it's given by uh, intravenous infusion right now. I mean, there's thoughts that maybe you could, you could change that later on. Um, but for, for in the interest of getting it to patients as, as quickly as we can, we, we're going with the same uh, protocol that was used in the cancer clinical trials, which was intravenous infusion. That was Dr. Paula Bates professor of medicine at the University of Louisville, being interviewed by Amanda Fuller of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Thanks much to both of you. We'll provide links to a couple of Dr. Bates' papers on our SoundCloud and Facebook pages, so look for that. This is Dave Robinson signing off for Bench Talk, the Week in Science. Take care of yourselves and see you next week.